I'm your health coach, Melissa Lee. Here at Thriving with Nourishment Health, I provide women with the resources to reclaim fertility and celebrate periods through the lens of functional medicine. It is time to empower ourselves with natural solutions over band-aid medicines. We will get to the root cause of symptoms to see the bigger picture. Let us find the ability to heal ourselves, get back to Mother Nature, and live in a healthier world. Hi everyone, say hi to Lily Nichols. She's a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Lily is the author of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and Real Food for Pregnancy, both fantastic books based on current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures. I highly recommend Lily as a resource to all things nutrition and pregnancy related. So welcome, Lily. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Um, as I've mentioned before we started recording, I'm actually in the middle of reading Real Foods for Pregnancy. And I love it because you really take into account like, you know, all the research and also wisdom from traditional cultures, which I think not a lot of people know about. So there were certain facts in there that were really surprising. Um, so, you know, to get started, what is actually considered real foods? Sure. So a lot of people have different definitions for real food. So this is, this is mine, take it or leave it. Um, yeah. We're talking mostly about unprocessed foods or things that you find in nature, at least that haven't been processed in a way that reduces their nutritional value. So there are some like traditional processing techniques that don't ruin the food. Okay. Like mm -hmm. uh, fermentation in many cases actually enhances the nutrient value of certain things. But if you take it to the place of say refining grains and taking off the hull of the grain, then you're taking out all the fiber and a lot of the B vitamins and minerals that were in that grain. It's less nutritious. It spikes your blood sugar more. Right. So right. Um, we're specifically talking about processing techniques that would, you know, impinge on the nutritional value of the food. And I also take it beyond um, just thinking of like whole grains versus refined grains, but also thinking about animal foods as well. A lot of us will go to the grocery store and not see things as processed foods necessarily if it's a single ingredient food. And yet the way that humans, if you were in a culture that traditionally consumed dairy, the way that humans consumed dairy was with the fat. We didn't take right. the fat out. Skimmed milk is kind of like a new thing. If you skimmed the cream off your milk, you reserved the cream for other purposes either to enjoy as cream or ferment into sour cream or make into butter, um, but you didn't throw that part of the food away. So you're not getting a complete nutritional, all the nutritional value of the food if you take all the fat out. The same goes with like eggs. If you're only eating the whites and not the yolks, you miss out on a lot of nutrients. Same with really any of your other animal foods, the way that we traditionally consumed animal foods across the world was a very much a no waste, nose to tail approach where you use all the parts. You don't take the skin off the chicken and throw it away. You don't cut the fat off the steak and throw it away. You don't throw away the organs. You don't throw away the bones. You don't even throw away the skin. I mean, you use right. every part of the animal and there's different nutrients that are more concentrated in different parts of the animal food. So when I'm talking about quote, real food, I'm talking about consuming, you know, a wide variety of different foods, plant and animal 
that have not been processed in a way to take out nutrients. And that includes not taking the fat out of places where nature put it. That makes so much sense to me when you talk about it like that. Um, I think when we talk about real foods or whole foods, a lot of people think it's just like foods that don't have an ingredient label or don't come in a box. Um, but when you talk about the whole food, you know, the fat off the dairy and also like the skin off chicken, that makes so much sense. Um, I love your approach to food because organ meats are also, you know, very nutritious and it's not a very common thing to eat <laughs> in our diet, right? Yeah. yeah so, sure. yeah. So when it comes to um, important nutri nutrients for pregnancy, um, what are the top few that stand out to you? Gosh, I mean, you can, you can take your pick of dozens of them. Um, from a macronutrient perspective, and those are the ones that provide you with actual energy, your fat, protein, and carbohydrates. Arguably, I mean, they all have a place, but protein is one of the most important ones, in my opinion, um, not only for providing you with protein, which is the building blocks for growing a new human, really, mm -hmm. um, but protein-rich foods also are very nutrient-dense. They're full of micronutrients. So when you're looking at a lot of the other things that are important to get enough of, if you get enough protein-rich foods from an omnivorous diet, so both plant and animal proteins, you're gonna be much more likely to hit the mark for choline, for vitamin B12, for iron, for zinc, for folate, for vitamin B6. I mean, you name it. Right. Those things tend to be most concentrated in protein-rich foods, especially your protein-rich animal foods. So if you just hit the mark on protein, uh, you, you've kind of like, it's not a two birds with one stone. It's like a whole flock of birds with one stone because <laughs> you're getting so many of these other nutrient needs met. The other reason I think protein is so important is that we do have some new research showing that the recommended intake for protein is set far too low. And that's because we've, you know, protein research has expanded like the, the, ways in which they can measure protein requirements have advanced over the past 20, 30 years. So as of 2015, they did the first ever study of protein requirements in pregnant women. And that's a surprise to a lot of people. It wasn't mm -hmm. ever a direct measurement. It was always an estimate. Nonetheless, this study found that protein requirements in pregnancy are way higher than the guidelines, especially in late pregnancy. They're 73% higher than our guidelines suggest. So um, while you can calculate your protein requirements based on body weight, which I do recommend you do, um, that's based on pre-pregnancy body weight, by the way, um, really for like a, I guess what I'd say an average weight US woman who weighs maybe 150 pounds pre-pregnancy, hard to say average because there's like such a wide variation yeah. in shapes and sizes, <laughs> but just to use 150 pounds as like a reference point, um, that puts you at an optimal protein intake of at least 100 grams of protein towards the end of pregnancy. So that's, that's a lot more than uh, many women are consuming, even in the US where people think we're like really high protein consumers, mm -hmm. actually about 67% of women don't hit that mark. So wow. um, it definitely shows there's some room for improvement. And if we did hit that mark, again, like a lot of these other micronutrients, we would be getting enough of, there'd be a lot less um, 
pregnancy-related anemia, a lot less gestational diabetes because protein helps with your blood sugar management, a lot less preeclampsia because it helps with your blood pressure. <laughs> a lot of things would be um, solved if we actually ate enough protein. And then if you want, I can expand on, on more of these micronutrients or, or we can we can tackle that later. Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the protein. So like, you know, if someone's listening to this and they don't eat a lot of meat or they kind of rely on protein powder, um, like what would you say to that? So I think it's a matter of learning about where, what your protein sources are. So you can kind of like pick and choose from which protein foods you do enjoy eating. And then if you still feel like you're falling short, then you can kind of maybe be a little more aggressive <laughs> about expanding <laughs> your, your food options. Um, for people who don't have my book, I do have a uh, blog post with on specifically on protein requirements and pregnancy that has a, a long list of all, all of your protein rich foods. Um, so again, it's like the more variety you have, the better yeah. in the protein department, because certain micronutrients are more concentrated in certain foods than other foods. So for example, eggs, especially the yolks, or really only the yolks, um, are our number one dietary source of choline, other than liver and organ meats, which a lot of people don't eat very much of. So eggs account for like more than half of the choline intake um, in the population. So if you're not eating eggs, that's like a nutrient gap that will often exist. Um, if you're not doing any animal foods whatsoever, then you'll be omitting all sources of vitamin B12. So are you supplementing with vitamin B12? Are you aware that the RDA for vitamin B12 is actually three times too low to support pregnancy and breastfeeding? So like if your supplement says 100% of the RDA, that's actually three times lower than it needs to be. You know, like that's a nutrient gap that can exist if your diet is like fully right. devoid of animal foods. Um, if you're doing, you know, fish, that's going to be one of your major sources of DHA and iodine and selenium. If you're not doing those things, those nutrients become a little trickier to get and mm -hmm. might warrant something like a DHA supplement, whether that's a fish oil or an algae-based DHA supplement. Um, and then thinking more critically about where you're gonna get your iodine and selenium, which right. can be kind of challenging without seafood. So yeah. the more variety that you have, mm -hmm. the better. Yeah, um, more options. Big, more options, yeah. you get a wider array of amino acids, which we now know there's like a lot of amino acids that we previously thought were non-essential that you actually require from your diet. So the more variety, the better. Um, as far as the protein powder question, I, I think it does have a place, especially if you're in a stage of pregnancy where you have nausea or food aversions or for whatever reason, like don't want to eat much other protein. But you do want to be, uh, you know, cautious about the quality of the protein powder. So starting from like the ingredient list, are there like, high doses of different vitamins in there or herbs or caffeine. Like sometimes there's weird things mixed into protein powders. What kind of sweeteners are they using? What's the source? Is it organic or not? Um, if it's like a whey protein, is it from grass-fed cows or not? Does the company provide a certificate of analysis so you can see that it's 
um, pure and doesn't have heavy metal contamination. There's a lot of heavy metals that are really common, especially in um, rice-based protein powders tend to have quite a bit of arsenic. Rice just tends to accumulate arsenic from the soil. So, you know, there's things that you want to be aware of in terms of like purity of both like contaminants and purity in terms of like what ingredients are in there. Are they safe in pregnancy? Um, mm -hmm. Or are you potentially overdoing some vitamins? Like there's some of these protein powders that are like a multivitamin built into a protein powder. So you'd be like, getting a double dose of a lot of things that you might already be getting in your prenatal vitamin. Um, but that said, if you can get like pure protein powder, ideally, in my opinion, one that's like unsweetened or has a safe um, sweetener in it and is clean. Um, so like a single ingredient, you know, organic brown rice protein powder or like a grass fed whey protein, or I don't know, a collagen protein from mm -hmm. a company that sources from grass-fed cow, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff matters. And I think it matters even more in pregnancy when you don't want exposure to toxins and contaminants and other issues. Then I see that as fine. I, I, that's something I think you could, you know, make into smoothies or drinks or other things just to boost your intake. But also keep in mind that when you purify something into a protein powder, you're going to be missing out on some of the components that are found in the whole food from which it was sourced. So it's still, in my opinion, suboptimal to mm -hmm. whole like food real... protein sources. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you need fat soluble vitamins yep. to pr even process your protein. And if you're eating whole food protein sources, most of them come with fat built right into it. Right. But a protein powder is like isolated, purified. It, it's not really going to have any innate or many innate vitamins and minerals because those were often lost in the processing. So it's, again, it's like, okay, as a supplement, but yeah. I don't see it as ideal if that's like supplying 100% of your protein needs. Right. So basically if you can eat like the animal meat, like that's still a better way to go. Um, unless you, for some reason, can't digest it, or you're not into that, then a protein powder. Right. Would be There's a always a place for supplementation. And as right. the diet gets more and more restrictive supplements tend to play a larger role. And it's certainly better to have some of something, even if it's not you right. know, optimal <laughs> than to have none and completely go without. So you got to kind of pick and choose and, and do the best you can with what you have available. A quick segue into fat a little bit. So you mentioned that, you know, fat's really important because it's usually built in with the protein and animal meats. Um, I bet like when you mentioned about like the chicken skin or, you know, fats associated with the animal, you know, some people who are listening might be like, I thought chicken skin's not good for health or, you know, it's affecting like my lipids or cholesterol or anything like that. So um, what are actually the benefits of, you know, having those kind of fats in our diet for pregnancy? Yeah. So all of Myth our fears buster. around, yeah, <laughs> our fears around fat go back, you know, decades. So the first dietary guidelines in the U S which were put out in the eighties were really strongly against, um, saturated fat and cholesterol and whatever we could do to limit our intake, the better. And this was ultimately based on flawed data that linked saturated fat and cholesterol intake to heart disease. We've now seen through many decades of research that that's a must, much less 
clear association, if any, um, between fats and you know adverse health outcomes, particularly when those fats are coming from whole food sources. There was like a really great study that looked at saturated fat in the context of coming from whole foods, like in red meat, in full fat dairy products, or in dark chocolate that did not find it had any association with cardiovascular risk factors. But say you like isolate saturated fat, put it into a processed food with refined uh, white flour and sugar and flavor chemicals and whatever, and you end up with a problem. You end up with an overconsumption problem. And also like you start combining you know, high doses of isolated fats with a lot of refined carbohydrates, and it doesn't tend to work very right. well for human metabolism. It tastes too good and it's, it's hard to resist. <laughs> so a lot of it depends on like the context of the fat, the quality of the fat and how it's consumed. Um, certainly with cholesterol, that's been like completely exonerated from its, you know, previously accepted role in contributing to heart disease. It turns out that cholesterol does not actually dietary cholesterol does not raise your blood lipids. Um, your body is pretty efficient at, at processing cholesterol and whatever it's not going to use. Um, it doesn't absorb or gets, you know, excreted in, in your feces and is, is long gone. So you can eat a really high cholesterol diet and your body responds by just producing less cholesterol and excreting more of it. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah. So um, as far as like its role in pregnancy, you know, fat and cholesterol are really important to the production of sufficient amounts of hormones. I mean, all of our sex hormones, including like our progesterone and estrogen are, are built on a backbone of cholesterol. So you do need cholesterol to create enough hormones. Obviously in pregnancy, your body is producing a lot more hormones than it usually is. Um, but more so than that, it's kind of like the protein analogy where certain things come along with the protein, certain things also come along with the fat. So our most best dietary sources of vitamin A, for example, and choline and B12 and iron and zinc and a whole array of amino acids, those tend to come in foods that are high in both saturated fat and cholesterol. So you start cutting out saturated fat obsessively and you will automatically have a lower intake of a lot of these different micronutrients, which, you know, I mean, I've written a whole book on the topic. Right. So I've talked for like hours about the roles of like vitamin A and like fetal eye development and prevention of, uh, you know, diaphragmatic hernias. I mean, there's so many things that each of these individual micronutrients does mm. that my big issue is when you start restricting the fat too much, you restrict a lot of these other micronutrients. You also, when you start restricting the fat, you by default end up eating more carbohydrates. We can only eat so much protein. Like we, most of us cap out at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, and the, so the balance, if you go really low on, on fat, um, is typically made up by eating more carbohydrates and carbohydrates. They're, they're not evil or anything, but they are the least nutrient dense foods of all of our choices out there in terms of their micronutrients. And they're the only macronutrient that, that significantly raises your blood sugar. 
And we know that the more carbs you eat, especially as they get more and more refined, like white sugar, white flour, whatever, the greater at risk you are for things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, other pregnancy complications. Also, the more carbs you eat, the lower your micronutrient intake is. And this has been shown in study after study after study. So you just have to ask, like, there's room for everything. There's room for mm -hmm. all of the micronutrients, but it's like, where's the balance going to fall? As you get too restrictive on the fat, you're going to have issues with hormone production. You're going to have issues with getting enough micronutrients. And because you're eating more carbs, there's probably going to be issues with blood sugar problems as well. So you kind of have to find a better balance. And that, that balance does end up looking like more protein, not being afraid of fat, choosing better quality carbs and making sure those carbohydrates do not end up displacing your most nutritious food sources that supply these key nutrients for baby's development. To me, when you um, describe that plate, um, it sounds great. It sounds so delicious because you can add like, you know, all the amazing tasting fats also like you can cook your vegetables with grass-fed butter and all that and it really does not feel like you know restrictive at all it also kind of adds like deliciousness back into eating yes which yes. I think is lost in our modern world there's so much stress about eating right and so much guilt and whatever associated with it so um yeah, I mean, just hearing you, you know, talk about like the benefits of protein and fat and like, you know, how that really can help like our future babies. Um, that just sounds amazing. Yeah. And it, and it tastes good. So <laughs> yeah, that's, it I mean, good. this is what I've been doing for most of my career as a dietitian is, is giving people permission to make their food taste good again, you yeah. know? So it's like, guess what? Vegetables are going to taste awful if you don't cook them with some fat and add some salt. <laughs> and so if you're not doing those two things, it's not going to taste good. This is why restaurant food tastes so good because they cook <laughs> with lots of fat and lots of salt. Now, when we're at home, we can choose to cook, you know, healthier, choose healthier fats, use, you know, good quality sea salt, not add, you know, fake kind of flavorings and MSG and other things. Um, but you can actually with just like butter and salt, turn the most boring vegetable into something that's really delicious that you actually want to eat. And then this whole concept of getting half of your plate from vegetables doesn't seem so hard when mm -hmm. it actually tastes good and you're allowed to put salad dressing on your salad and avocado and like, yeah, fats to it. <laughs> and it's actually enjoyable. And then it keeps you full longer and you're not starving all day long. I mean, it really becomes a problem when you start getting really restrictive on right. your fat intake. And that's unfortunately kind of what happened to America as a whole. We, we did overall listen to the majority of the guidelines, which was focused on, you know, decreasing our fat intake. A lot of people did follow that. And as a result, we started eating a lot more carbohydrates. The food companies started putting a lot more sugar in things and chemicals. And I mean, it just created a giant health disaster, which we now right. find ourselves in. Right. And so it's funny. I mean, it sounds very, you know, counterculture or scary for people to go back to cooking like their great grandmother did, but that's really where it's at. It's like the farm to table, fat of the land. Don't be afraid of salt. 
um, and everyone's happier and you'll you feel the difference too. Sounds so good. You're, you're making me hungry already. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to touch upon two um, nutrients that I thought stood out a little bit more in your book, um, glycine and choline. I think, you know, most people may not know what they are. So, you know, like, let's talk about glycine first. Like, um, how is it usually missed when we talk about, you know, nutrition for pregnancy? Yeah, so glycine is one that doesn't even make it into the conventional nutrition guidelines at all. Um, it's a nutrient that's considered non-essential outside of pregnancy. But then during pregnancy, your glycine needs increase beyond what your body can typically supply. So it becomes what's called conditionally essential. So that means you have to obtain it from your diet to support your overall health in pregnancy. So glycine is found mainly in collagen. Collagen makes up about a third of the protein in your body. As you can imagine, when you are pregnant, growing a new human, you're going to need a lot of glycine to grow that human, which is one third uh, collagen. Mm -hmm. So it's needed for, you know, all the way down to fetal DNA. It's need for bone, connective tissue, skin, uh, blood vessels. It's required for your body because your skin and connective tissue and everything is remodeling. Your uterus is growing. So your uterus at term contains 800% more collagen in pregnancy than when you're not pregnant. Um, that means you need more glycine for that as well. So it can actually stretch and grow as, as it should. Um, so glycine is something that's found mainly in connective tissues of uh, animal foods. So you're looking at, you know, slow cooked meat, like pot roast stews, um, eating bone broth. There's a lot of cultures that use bones to make broth and often the, the bones that have like a joint. So like feet or, you know, a, a leg joint or something like that have even more um, collagen and glycine because that's where most of the connective tissue is. Mm -hmm. It's in the skin of animal foods. So that chicken with the skin, it's not just fat that's in the skin. There's a lot of collagen and, and um, glycine in there. Um, pork cracklings, like fried pork skin. Of course, there's always the option of like collagen or gelatin um, supplement powders as well. But it's a really important one that nobody really talks about. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> don't consume those foods, which if you've noticed, those are all of animal origin. Your, your plant sources mm -hmm. of glycine are really limited in the amount of um, glycine they actually have. Spirulina algae, for example, is a source, but it's like a fraction of the amount of glycine that you get from, from uh, animal foods then you can end up with, with an issue. Um, and sometimes this will show up as like more stretch marks, um, more tearing dur during delivery or challenges with healing a tear at delivery or a surgical wound. Um, so it is, it is definitely an important um, amino acid to have on hand. Yeah. Um, I, so for me, I always avoided all the joints and like the really squishy bits not because like I wanted to avoid fats it's just because they're so slimy for me and sometimes it triggers like almost like a gagging reflex but my husband loves that so we will always get like you know two different kinds of like beef soup of beef stews for example 
um, they had that in like Korean cuisine. Um, but now that I've read that and you know I've I heard you talk about it, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try to give it a try. Like, well, a lot of that stuff would it. go into the bone broth, so you don't have right. to eat all the like. And you can like cook your chicken till the skin is crispy and yeah, that's be, like, true. Gooey and gross, but that, <laughs> that's like super super common to not enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I do see my husband just gnawing on like the joints and stuff. He eats it completely clean. So I definitely know he's getting some of some that Some people collagen. really, yeah, <laughs> some people really love it. Um, your other yeah. question though was about choline. And yes. choline is a B vitamin-like compound that I call it folate's long lost cousin because it has a lot of um, shared functions in the body as folate. They kind of function in the same cycle of folate metabolism and methylation, but choline is important for preventing neural tube defects. It's not just folate. Um, it's important for baby's brain development all the way through pregnancy into early toddlerhood and beyond. It's important for adult brain health as well. It's important for liver health, placental health. It also um, enhances the delivery of certain nutrients across the placenta, including DHA, and helps um, incorporate more DHA into the fetal brain. So that's an omega-3 fat that's also helpful for brain development. So it kind of co-functions around a lot of different nutrients. Mm -hmm. And it is something that a lot of people don't get enough of, especially women. So 96% of, rather 94%, I want to cite the the study properly of women don't consume enough choline to meet the needs of pregnancy. Part of that goes all the way back to the earlier part of our conversation around people being really diligent about not consuming too much fat and not consuming mm. too much cholesterol because your richest sources of choline are egg yolks and liver and other organ meats are also really high in choline and those are really high in cholesterol. So if you're avoiding cholesterol, Right. We are to get your choline needs. Um, beyond that, you know, you're looking at basically all foods of animal origin, especially your meats and um, seafood. Beyond that, there's a little bit in dairy products, not a ton. And then um, similar to the amount of dairy products, like you get a little bit in beans and legumes, nuts and seeds, cruciferous vegetables, um, shiitake mushrooms, but it's like a fraction of the amount that you get in an egg yolk. Mm. So just to put it into perspective, to get the amount of choline in a single egg yolk, you'd have to eat two cups of cooked beans. So it's just really challenging to get. That's a lot that of beans in one sitting. You, yeah. Right. <laughs> if you and have to eat eggs, all egg yolks. Yeah, exactly. And two eggs meets about half of your choline requirements in pregnancy, again, eaten mm. with the yolks. So you can imagine like even if you ate four cups of beans per day, <laughs> which I don't know if anybody would be want to be in the same room as you, um, you've still only made it halfway to your choline requirements for the day. And that's one of the richest plant sources of choline. So it is definitely a um, argument to, you know, barring like overt um, allergy or sensitivity to eggs, of course, mm -hmm. to make a case for consuming them if your body tolerates them well. They're really highly nutritious and nutrient dense and um, is really the easiest way to get your choline in. And if someone was, you know, as you said, like sensitive to eggs or can't eat it now, where would they get it from? Like a supplement? 
Well, any of those food sources I mentioned could okay. be a potential source. So you might want to be a little more reliant on, you know, liver and organ meats and things, although it's hard to eat a large quantity of those things. And <clears throat> arguably you really shouldn't be eating like a ton of liver in pregnancy. I think it's good to include, you know, maybe once a week um, mm. or a couple times a month, but it's not something that you'd be able to eat enough liver <laughs> alone to meet all your choline requirements. So max out from like all of those different food sources I mentioned. You could even track if you want on um, a free app called Chronometer. You can turn on choline tracking in the settings. Um, but a lot of people are just gonna want to add a supplement for that. So there's many different forms of choline supplements on the market. And by the way, some of them are vegetarian, so they can extract uh, lecithin, from sunflower seeds, for example, which is a really rich source of choline. And that would be like a, a vegan friendly option. There's also choline bitartrate and other choline salts um, that would be just fine to use. In fact, a lot of the studies done on choline pregnancy are using um, choline bitartrate. There's phosphatidylcholine also just fine mm. to use. So you might want to look, I mean, a lot of prenatal vitamins don't include choline because it's a really bulky nutrient. So you're looking at many, many capsules per day. If your prenatal includes more than like a pixie dust amount of choline. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where a separate supplement can come in or just get really choosy about the prenatal and be prepared. It's probably going to be quite a few capsules. Right. Okay. Got it. So you talked about liver a little bit. I mean, quite a lot. Um, so it's basically, you know, really superior in, you know, the amount of vitamins and minerals. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. So liver, in terms of micronutrients, liver is one of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. So one of the best sources of choline, certainly the best dietary source of vitamin A, great source of vitamin K2. It has vitamin D, it has vitamin B12 in really high amounts best food source of folate. People think folate is all leafy greens vegetables. and legumes. And mm -hmm. it is also in vegetables. I have a big blog post on my site on folate for people who want to dive in a little more, but liver is the most concentrated source of folate that we have, which surprises people. You're also getting zinc, copper, iron. I mean, so many different nutrients and B vitamins <laughs> and minerals that all work together really synergistically in your body. I mean, if there's any food that could uh, potentially replace a multivitamin, I mean, liver doesn't fill every gap, but it gets, checks most of the boxes, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So it's definitely a beneficial thing to include in your diet, you know, on occasion in an ancestral context of like, if you were out in the wild hunting, you get a whole animal and only has one liver, right? So it's not yeah. like it's not like liver replaces like all of the protein in your diet or something, but it is something that traditionally um, was a really prized uh, food source for a lot of cultures. And that was often mm. the first thing that the hunters would consume was the liver. They would very carefully remove the liver and cut it into pieces. Everyone would get a little bit because um, they knew it was so highly nutritious. And you know, unfortunately, we've had a lot of, um, I'd say, misconstrued information given out about liver and pregnancy because it is a rich source of vitamin A. And there's some old studies that found synthetic supplemental vitamin A was a risk factor for certain birth defects. And that was extrapolated to mean that 
Any foods that are high in vitamin A are also dangerous. Um, the research actually hasn't panned out to prove that's the case, um, but there continues to be warnings about um, liver consumption in pregnancy, mostly based on the vitamin A content that just are totally unfounded. And I'm not the only one who like comes to that conclusion. I have a whole section on liver and real food for pregnancy going through the the research on that for people who really want to dive deeper in it, but mm. it is beneficial to have it in your diet, you know? Yeah, for sure. Every once in a while, you know, it's, it's not <laughs> a food that I find people over consuming very easily. It has an, it's an acquired taste, has a strong flavor. So mm-hmm. if it's not something that you grew up eating as a child, um, it's probably going to take some time to figure out a way to incorporate it into your diet. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I've, I've been um, getting my clients to go on liver, even though they have like, you know, different like health goals. Uh, one may want fertility and one may not. But um, I do find that the liver really helps with their fatigue levels, for example, and energy yes. levels like so much. Um, and that is probably why. <laughs> yes, that's one of definitely one of the reasons if you just look at, you know, all of the cycles of, you know, energy metabolism, folate metabolism, it's like liver checks all the boxes for all the nutrients that are involved mm-hmm. in like mitochondrial health, which is what creates the energy in your body and, you know, creation of red blood cells. Like people are always thinking it's just iron, but like, Hey, it's actually B12 and folate and vitamin A and copper um, and all these nutrients that are already in liver. So if you're talking about getting really fatigued, I mean, you need sufficient red blood cell production, mm. sufficient amounts of hemoglobin to carry sufficient amounts of oxygen in your body. And liver really is the best way to treat it. In fact, before we had um, supplemental isolated iron supplements, that's how they treated anemia. It was liver or liver extract. I mean, you go back to the medical journals from like yes. the 1940s and prior, and there's all this data on, on liver and anemia. Um, we've kind of forgotten it since, but there are some nods to it in the modern research where they show, you know, oh, hey, iron supplements alone don't really fix this. But when we co-supplement with vitamin A or even only supplement with vitamin A, it like fixes a lot more anemia than when we give uh, iron on its own. Same with B12 and copper and a bunch of these other nutrients that are all, you know, they work together in the body. Yeah. It's always like a cocktail, I think. It just works better that way yeah um okay so you know just to kind of like wrap it up here what are the top three pointers you would give to a woman when she wants to eat better during her pregnancy I know we talked about a lot but like you know if someone just wants like quick tips yeah so again it's so hard to like choose individual things and we kind of went deep on certain micronutrients but just to bring it back to you know, simple things, um, thinking back to, you know, your nod to the plate method that I talk about in my book where you get like half your plate, mostly vegetables, a quarter of your plate protein in its whole food source. So it has fat in there too. And then a quarter of your plate carbohydrates. That's like a really good, very basic template Mm -hmm. for hitting most of your nutritional needs. Um, The most important one that I see women falling short in, again, is protein. So 
I mentioned chronometer for tracking choline. I don't think everybody needs to track things, by the way, but if you're curious, if you use tracking in a very specific way so you don't get like bent out of shape and all obsessive about it and restricty with it, to set a minimum goal for protein and track for a couple of days and see where you're at. Um, while also noticing like your energy levels and fatigue levels and hunger and fullness cues. And if you're checking your blood sugar, how your blood sugar is doing, you'll notice how beneficial it is and how much different you feel getting enough protein. So those few things are probably the most important. Um, and I come back to the simple things, even though we can expand on all the nitty gritty details and the research and the data points, like those are all fun. But if you're hitting the basics, plate method, protein, yeah, probably don't have to worry about a lot of those details because those details have been taken care of for you already. Right. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, you have to take it every day or week at a time in pregnancy. There are a lot of different, um, symptoms and things that your body will throw at you at different stages. So my apologies to anybody who's listening in their first trimester and feels like nauseous or is having food aversions, which is very common during that phase. Um, go to my blog. There's a post called first trimester tips. That'll give you a lot of reassurance first of all. Um, but you just got to do the best that you can given what symptoms are coming your way that day. There's a lot of different ways to make it through a uh, pregnancy and you've got to sort of honor what your body mm -hmm. can handle at any given time. If you're also, you know, brand new to eating this way, um, take it a day at a time, take it a week at a time. You don't have to change everything. You don't have to bring liver into your diet this week, you know, <laughs> you know, do it, do what you can and just focus on one thing at a time. And once, once that one thing has become kind of second nature, you expand beyond that. It's like, okay, I've gotten comfortable cooking with fat again after 10 years of being, you know, super low fat. Okay. That's now comfortable for me. Like next thing, I'm going to focus on more protein or next thing. I'm going to try to vary my protein options. Next thing, maybe I'm going to work on getting more vegetables and whatever it is. Um, just we're all starting somewhere and there's, there's yeah. never a bad time to start this journey. I love that. Um, and I think your book is also a great complement to that whole journey um, during pregnancy. So if someone wants to, you know, find out more about your work, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Um, that's what, where you'll find several of those different blog posts I've re referenced today, like the first trimester tips, the protein requirements in pregnancy. I have a separate blog post on folate, on choline. I mean, just use the search bar <laughs> and there's a lot of different um, information available there. I also give away the first chapter for free of Real Food for Pregnancy on my site. If you just want to get a sort of deeper look at what do I mean about real food and why did I even need to write a book about this if we have all our nutrition guidelines, right? Um, the book was written because there's a gap in the nutrition guidelines that I'm trying mm. to fill, by the way, I'm trying to yes. cut down the 17-year the lag time that it typically takes for research to make it in the clinical practice. Um, 
And then other than that, you know, I have a bookshop that's listed there. You can also get my books on Amazon and uh, social media wise. You can find me most likely on Instagram, although I'm not like the most active uh, social media person. And my handle is at Lily Nichols RDN.